Welcome to this London lecture. It's very good to see some new faces, um, by which I don't mean that I'm disappointed to see some old faces. Um, as, as those of you who were the excellent uh, last Keeble London lecture will know, I swapped uh, slots with tonight's uh, lecturer. Uh, uh, but before we come to that and my high praise of him, uh, I do just want to uh, say one or two uh, practical things. There are some representatives of the college present, um, the usual sinners from the Alumni and Development Office, whose names will be well known to you, uh, Ruth, Camilla and, uh, and Jenny. Um, there are some fellows of the college who purport to conduct academic research and tuition uh, from time to time, um, namely the senior tutor, Mark Brodie. And I want to pause over Mark because Mark has been senior tutor for nearly five years, but he is leaving Keeble um, at the end of this term. And uh, whilst he will not be known to all of you, I do want to say publicly a very big thank you to Mark for all he's done during his time as senior tutor. He's been um, a, a very considerable... Uh, uh, we, we also have with us tonight Roger Bowden, the bursar, about whom um, the less said the better, I think, probably. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and the uh, sub-warden, um, Paul Taylor, um, uh, whose triumphs some of you uh, have heard me uh, recount uh, in terms of the engineering results uh, last summer. Um, they were magnificent. Uh, and I'm also delighted to see here one of our emeritus fellows, Larry Seedentop, um, and uh, his distinction needs um, no adornment uh, by me. Uh, it's very good that you're here, Larry. A uh, couple of thanks. Um, first of all, uh, to Andrew Hughes. Where's he? Sit there, you're Andrew, who uh, has made these UBS facilities available. And thank you um, very much for that. And Jonathan Mills, whom I don't see, but who um, has sponsored uh, this series of Keeble London Lectures, and we are very grateful to him. Now, uh, no more of all that. We come to tonight's performer, uh, who is actually a star. Um, he came to Keeble uh, in October 2010 at exactly the same moment that I became warden, but he came from uh, an illustrious uh, preceding academic career, most recently then, uh, in Singapore, but prior to that at the Kennedy School uh, at Harvard. Um, he's uh, an Austrian, uh, Victor Meyer Schoenberg, that's where he was educated, but he's taught, I think I'm right in this, um, in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland, uh, as well as in the other locations that I've mentioned. Um, he's a polymath, that's to say, on the one hand, he understands physics, and on the other hand, he understands law and many things in between, uh, and has brought uh, great uh, distinction to the college, not least through the book title, uh, which is illustrated on that screen, um, which is a most marvelous read. And I think you're going to give us some insight into that tonight. I really am delighted to give the floor to Victor Meyer Schoenberger. Thank you. 
speaking to you and uh, to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about forgetting tonight. <coughs> I was also promised uh, by Jenny that you are a, um, a, a, a wonderful group for me to fail. Um, and so um, if I do succeed in failing, um, I, hope, uh, I, I hope you'll be kind with me. Um, I say that uh, with some, only somewhat tongue-in-cheekish because what I'm trying to do is to convey and communicate a relatively difficult and arcane subject and at the same time trying to be somewhat amusing and engaging. Um, and that is trying to square the circle. And I'm trying to do that not by providing you with a classical academic presentation, namely the problem, <laughs> the theory, the methodology, the results, and then the conclusion, which always has to have as the last point, more need for more funding. <laughs> That last point, of course, is obvious, <laughs> but uh, the funding should all go to the college. Um, <laughs> now, having said this, what I would like to do, if you permit me to indulge in that, is to offer you a meditation on remembering and forgetting. Stacy Snyder. Stacy Snyder wanted to be a teacher. By the spring of 2006, she had completed her coursework and was looking forward to her teacher's certificate. Then from one day to the next, her dream was over. She was summoned to the dean of her university and told that she would not receive her certificate. She would not be a teacher, although she had the credits, passed the exams, completed practical training. She would not be given her certificate, she was told, because her behavior was unbecoming of a teacher. Her behavior? A photo showing her with a cap and a cup. Captioned, drunken pirate, Stacy Snyder had put this photo on her webpage for her friends to see and perhaps to chuckle. But the university administration had found the photo and it found the photo to induce minors to consume alcohol and thus to be inappropriate for a teacher. When Stacy was confronted by the university administration, she considered taking the photo offline, but it was too late. Her photo had been indexed by search engines and archived by web crawlers. As much as Stacy wanted the photo to be forgotten, the internet would not permit that. Remembering instead of forgetting, remembering, forgetting. In 2001, Andrew Feldmar, a Canadian psychotherapist living in Vancouver, wrote an academic article in a journal. In the article, he mentioned that he had taken LSD in the 1960s. In the summer of 2006, like many times before, Andrew Feldmar wanted to cross into the United States to pick up a friend from Seattle International Airport. The US immigration officer Googled Feldmar and discovered the academic article from 2001. 
because Feltmar had failed to disclose to the immigration officer, although he never denied it, that he had taken drugs 40 years earlier. He was interrogated for three hours, fingerprinted, and then barred from entering the United States forever. Remembering instead of forgetting. Of course, you may say now, Stacy's and Andrew's cases are tragic, but at least in part because of their own fault. Had they not put information online, Stacy would be a teacher now, and, and Andrew could still travel into the United States. Everybody has to decide for her and himself what to make available online. Or, to paraphrase the Swiss author Friedrich Dürrenmatt, what once has been put on the web is no longer forgotten. Really. Do we really know every time information about us is being collected, stored, and made accessible? Google. <laughs> For most of us, Google is the search engine of choice. Millions of people around the world send more than 3 billion search queries to Google every single day. Google is showing them the way. Google also shows us what is being searched, when, where, and by whom. This is a system or a service called Google Trends. And what you can see here is how many people searched for the term Iraq over time. And it breaks it down by regions, cities, and languages, and even superimposes news items, moments in the news to the line. Or take another example. A few years back, we were hit by the H1N1 flu crisis. And the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta and the United States, responsible for tracking the spread of the epidemic or then the pandemic, required general practitioners to tell them immediately every single H1N1 flu case that they had in their practice. And then with tremendous efforts by the Centers for Disease Control, they were able to tabulate the spread of the pandemic two weeks later. So whenever you would call the Centers for Disease Control, they were able to tell you where the pandemic was two weeks ago. That was practically useless for health officials, public health officials. And would the virus have been more lethal? We would have been in a very serious crisis. Google thought it could do better. It took the search queries it had received, and it tried to model the spread of the flu based on the search queries that it received. And to predict the spread of the flu down to the city and down to the street. Now, I'll show you data, of the official data of the Centers for Disease Control and the Google model over time. The uh, blue is the Google data, the model, and the yellow is the US Centers for Disease Control data. Google can do this even for events years back because Google does not forget. 
since Google's humble beginnings almost 15 years ago, Google has stored every single search query it ever received. Three billion a day. Every single one of them. And every search result you ever clicked on. Remembering. Forgetting. For millennia, for us humans, forgetting has been easy. It's built into us. We forget most of what we experience every day, our feelings, our thoughts. Remembering is hard. Since the beginning of time, therefore, we humans have tried to overcome this forgetting and to hold on to memories that are precious. For thousands of years, we have tried, like this Navajo Indian, to pass on our memories to our children in the hope that they, too, may thus be able to remember. This is how the great epics of the world emerged thousands of years ago. But human memory is not fixed. It changes as we remember, as we reconstruct our past. And so depending on it may not be sufficient, especially when we want to capture something precisely or for a long period of time. Painting is one way of encapsulating visual impressions to create an external a more precise and a more lasting memory, like this beautiful cave drawing from the caves of Altamira. Script, originally developed, will you believe it, by accountants, searching for a precise method of remembering, has for millennia remained humanity's preferred external memory. Language, painting, script. Provided us with the capacity to remember through generations and across time. But these tools have not altered the fundamental fact that for us humans, forgetting is easy and remembering is hard, time-consuming, costly. The book did not change this either. Neither did the phonograph or film. Remembering remained expensive for most human beings and was thus chosen carefully. If I may indulge in a very personal story here, the personal story is from the early 1930s. My grandfather, called Victor, had a son, my father, born in the late 1920s, called Victor. And my grandfather, gave, my fa my grandfather was a judge, a circuit judge in rural Austria at that time. And a circuit judge meant that you would go from one village to the next to preside over proceedings there, court proceedings. And because times were particularly hard, he would walk from one village to the other. And once in a while, his son, his young son, would accompany my grandfather. And my grandfather gave my father in 1932 a Kodak Brownie box camera and said, little Victor, this is a camera. It takes photographs, but be careful what photographs you take because every photograph costs money. And so choose your motifs carefully and reserve them for the really important moments. And that's what my father did. Fast forward into the early 1970s. My father, Victor, had a son, Victor. And he gave this son, me, a Kodak compact camera and said, Victor, with this camera, you can take photographs. But be careful. Every photograph costs money. And so reserve 
those photos for the really important moments in your life. And I did, tried. Fast forward, I have a son now called Victor. <laughs> but when I give him a digital camera now, he has no conception of the idea of a cost for a photograph. He just presses the button. Four gigabit, gigabytes of chip can be filled up in a day. <laughs> but for us, for us human beings of the old analog age, remembering remained expensive and was thus chosen carefully. In other words, for us, forgetting was the default and remembering was the exception. This enabled us to deal with time. Through our capacity to forget, we rid ourselves of excess memory. What has long been past fades in our mind. Thus we tribute to, uh, pay our tribute to time and depreciate what is no longer relevant to our present. But because forgetting is so built into us, we humans never had to develop the cognitive capacity to deliberately forgot, forget and to depreciate our memories and to make them fade. If I tell you something and then I say, you must forget this now, <laughs> you will remember. <laughs> Today, this is different. Google remembers, Yahoo remembers, Amazon remembers, the Internet Archive remembers. Flight reservation systems remember. Flight reservation systems remember. Yes, just so did you perhaps know, every flight you look at, even though you don't book, is remembered by the flight reservation system for six months, just in case a three-letter agency might want the information. <laughs> and not always do we realize that we have contributed to the digital memory and made it accessible on the net. For example, Millions of Facebook users around the world change their profile, their Facebook profile, when they begin or end a relationship. This, not that you're in a relationship or not, but the fact that your relationship status changed can be accessible as part of Facebook's open graph, depending on your privacy settings, and can be captured by third parties. In the aggregate, this may reveal amusing trends, like this chart depicting when relationships end most frequently <laughs> over the course of the year. <laughs> April Fool's Day, a joke gone bad. <laughs> It can also be analyzed on an individual level, not just on an aggregate level, indicating not just who you were in a relationship with, but how long, on average, your relationships last and how many you've had. That might be interesting for a future employer or for a future partner. Or take the next example. This is a map of the city of London. Now, Every single colored dot you see on this map represents a photograph that somebody uploaded to the internet site Flickr. Flickr hosts about three and a half billion photographs right now. It's a relatively large photo site, but what is interesting is when you upload the photograph, you not only upload your photograph, particularly when you have shot it with a smartphone like this, 
you also upload meta information about a photograph, when the photo was being taken, but also where it was being taken, geolocation information. And so, because Flickr is completely accessible to the public for the most part, we have gone, not we, but researchers have gone out and downloaded all of the meta information and then mapped it onto a city. So every dot represents a photograph that was taken at that particular point and uploaded to Flickr. The hotter the color, like red, the more photographs were taken at that particular location. Now, that's very interesting because that tells you where the sort of really good spots are to take photographs in London. <laughs> but disaggregated, and then you can suddenly, just by looking at Flickr photo streams and the meta information that is associated and uploaded with it, create a profile of where people have been at a particular moment in time. And none or very few of the people who upload stuff to Flickr are aware of this. And if you think Flickr is dangerous, keep in mind you can also upload photos to Facebook. How many photos do you think are uploaded to Facebook, let's say, every day? How many? 250 million. So from forgetting, from human forgetting, we have moved to comprehensive digital remembering. How did this happen? You know this perhaps as much as I do. Four elements are, are important. First, digitization. That is that everything can be translated into a binary code and therefore we can reuse the infrastructure that we have for very different purposes. Second, of course, advances in storage technology. In 1965, a young engineer by the name of Gordon Moore in the United States surmised that the density of integrated circuits, he said, might approximate a doubling every two years. Uh, it has become, the, the was called uh, Moore's Law. Importantly, digital storage capacity has tracked the impressive increase in processing power that Gordon Moore first witnessed more than four decades ago. Here you see the red line up is processing or processor density, processing power over time. And the yellow line is storage density. Over the last couple of years, storage density has even a, 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 a more impressive slope upward than processor capacity. If you think this is a really impressive slope, look at the y-axis. It's a logarithmic y-axis. Gordon Moore, by the way, he himself did rather well, too. After coming up with this idea of sort of processor capacity doubling uh, in the early 60s, he founded a small startup company that he held a lot of shares in and still does called Intel. <laughs> but storage alone is not sufficient. I come to my third point. The East German secret police, the Stasi, had hundreds of millions of facts in its files on almost a million of its citizens, yet with its elaborate systems of pseudonyms and codes and mostly paper-based files, it had difficulties retrieving information in time. This too is very different today. Full text indexing, prohibitively expensive, only a few decades ago today is so affordable that it is not only what drives our user expectation on the internet, but is also built into most major file systems. You know, you type in a Google search and it auto-completes 
what you're searching for. Search for the wife of former German President Wolf, Bettina Wolf, and Google autocompletes prostitute. <laughs> Add to this the fourth, the ability to access, oh, by the way, I should explain, there's a court case about that. Uh, <laughs> um, that, I, that I'm in, so, so perif peripherally involved in. Uh, uh, as, a, as a technical uh, uh, <laughs> expert. Enough jokes. Um, add to this, oh no, there's one, another one coming up right here. Add uh, to this the ability to access information through a global infrastructure, namely the internet. A few minutes are sufficient to disseminate a document, even accidentally, and have it distributed around the globe. As this page from the manual of operating US airplane Air Force One, which was made available online accidentally for a couple of minutes, but just enough time for me to download. <laughs> now, once the mistake was realized, it was too late. And this, by the way, is how you get into Air Force One, just in case you ever need it. <laughs> so taken together today, this has led to remembering becoming the default and forgetting the exception. To an extent, this ought to be a reason for celebration. Yes, our vast and accessible digital memories offer numerous benefits, increased accuracy, improved efficiency, all the way to the promise to help us transcend human mortality. At the same token, undoing forgetting, I believe, has consequences far beyond the narrow confines of information efficiencies. Two terms characterize what I believe is truly at stake, power and time. Power. Power is relative and relational. As information privacy scholars have long argued, power over information may translate into power over the individual the information refers or pertains to. But such informational power reaches far beyond that. Consider that for centuries, the Catholic Church rested its power in no small part on its domination of the institutions of remembering, from scribes and books to libraries. A societal consequence of such power imbalances has often been for those that are imbalanced to choose silence. And this is precisely what power holders intend. And look at it from a societal perspective. Take Jeremy Bentham's idea of the panopticon. The panopticon is the concept of a prison in which the prison guards can watch the prisoners without the prisoners knowing whether they're actually being watched. The idea of the aim of the panopticon is behavioral compliance through the permanent threat of invisible surveillance. Oscar Gandhi and others have argued that the internet may help create a global panopticum in which everybody has to assume that she is being watched all the time. Such a panopticum may lead people to self-censor online, fearing that their utterances could be misconstrued by any one of the billion or two people and thousands of jurisdictions connected to it. 
But today, we face more than just a global panopticon. Because of comprehensive digital memory, we have to assume that what we say or do on the internet today will not only be witnessed in the present, but will remain accessible for years, perhaps decades, into our future. This creates a temporal panopticum in which we may be prompted to self-censor, not because we are afraid of how others might interpret our words and deeds today, but because how people and institutions in the future might view them. My second concern is time, or more precisely, how we humans deal with time. As I mentioned, forgetting is built into us, so we didn't have to develop conscious mechanisms to put different and perhaps contradictory pieces of information into a temporal perspective. Now, so Jonathan mentioned that I'm a lawyer by training, although I try to hide that. But lawyers like hypotheticals, so please consider the following hypothetical. Jane and John. Jane and John are old friends. Although they live in two different cities now, they try to catch up at least once a year. One day, Jane receives an email from John in which he tells her that he's coming to town and looks forward to having coffee with her. Jane is excited. She hasn't seen her old friend John in almost a year, and she wants to reply right away to suggest a nice place to meet. So to remind her where they met last time, she is querying her mailbox folder. Up pop dozens and dozens of email messages within a few seconds that she has received from John over the years. She is quickly browsing through them to find the right one, but then her eye catches a 10-year-old email with a strange subject line. She starts to scan its text and then begins to read. Surprised, perhaps even shocked, she reads about how John deceived her and revisits angry exchanges back and forth between them. Slowly, the events and her feelings, triggered by this concrete external stimulus, come back to her mind, her sense of betrayal and deception. She reads on about how over the following month and year, John and her apparently must have reconciled, although exactly how and why, the emails do not tell. But at the forefront of her mind now is how John, her good friend John, deceived her. And suddenly she is not so sure anymore she wants to meet John when he's coming to town. As much as her analytic mind wants to disregard the revived memory, the angry words that she read triggered her recall. They are the external memory that may help us remember things that we thought we had forgotten. But they may also cloud our ability to evaluate and to decide in the present. Put in more abstract terms, cognitive psychologists remind us that for us humans it is difficult to realize time as a dimension of change. That may trigger incorrect decision-making. In the analog times, the danger was there too, but it was limited. Our human forgetting obscured our cognitive difficulty with time. But what when we are not permitted to forget anymore? 
We know a little bit about the consequences through studies of less than a handful of human beings who have difficulties, biological difficulties, to forget. This is AJ, a woman who has difficulties forgetting. Ask her about a particular day. She's able to tell you when she woke up, what was on television, who called, how the weather was for every day the last 30 years. AJ cannot forget. But for her, she says it is not a blessing, it is a curse. She is haunted by the past so much, in fact, that it limits her ability to decide in the present. Whenever she is faced with a decision, she remembers every single failed decision of her past. Or as Argentinian writer Hercules Borges said, perfect memory pushes us to get lost in detail with no ability to generalize, to abstract, and to evolve. We lose Borges' rights what makes us truly human and remain theatered to an ever more detailed past rather than living and acting in the present. This may be the fate that we face with comprehensive digital memory. Through perfect digital memory or close to perfect digital memory, we also deny each other the capacity to change over time, to evolve, and to grow. Without forgetting, it turns out, it is hard for us humans to forgive. And so, with comprehensive digital remembering, we may turn into an unforgiving society. But there is another wrinkle to the story. What if, what if frustrated with the shortcomings of our own human memory, we begin to disregard our own recollections of our past and depend on digital memory instead? Does that give those that control digital memory, the Facebooks, the Flickers, the YouTubes, the Googles of the world, does that give those that control digital memory the power to change history? Now, if you think that this is far-fetched, let me introduce you to two true stories. One, in Stalin times, the Soviet Union had an entire department of highly skilled retouching artists. And a, their task was to retouche out people who had fallen from grace from official photographs. And there's a famous photograph showing Stalin at a table surrounded by four or five comrades. And over time, one comrade after the other would vanish. <laughs> and at the very end, Stalin would stand there on his own. Now, of course, we're not on Stalinist times anymore. In democracies, that would never happen, right? <laughs> there are commercial companies right now in the United States that offer a particularly interesting service, so to speak. You send them your digital photographs of your past, and they will edit out your ex-partner all of the holiday photographs, of all of the Christmas photographs, your ex-partner is gone. <laughs> Does that give those that control digital memory the power to change history? These are some of the potential threats of shifting the default from forgetting to remembering. So, 80% done, right? I characterized the problem. That's what <laughs> academics do. What to do? 
Some responses already exist. The first one, the most obvious one, is to enact information privacy rights. The idea of privacy, or pardon me, privacy rights, uh, is intriguingly simple. By giving each and every individual a right to informational privacy, we empower the people to fight for their rights. Enforcement, therefore, is both decentralized and delegated. It sounds great, but it comes with a number of inherent weaknesses. Most importantly, that those that we aim to protect and empower, us citizens, do not care. In Europe, strong information privacy rights have been enacted decades ago that, by and large, people have not used. Information ecology, the second approach, is different. It's the conscious regulatory restriction of what personal information can be stored and for how long. Such norms necessitate government action and compliance and enforcement may be costly. But they have two advantages over individual privacy rights. First, they do not require individuals to go to court. And second, they protect against an uncertain future. Protect against an uncertain future. Consider the case of the Dutch citizen register. Put in place in the 1930s for perfectly good reasons to ensure the administration of social security. The register included information on religion and ethnicity. Once the Nazis invaded the Netherlands, they deliberately targeted the register, repurposing the information in it to identify Dutch Jews and sent them to concentration camps. As a result, proportionally speaking, more Dutch Jews were murdered by the Nazis than those from France, Poland, or Germany. Even Jewish refugees in the Netherlands fared better because they were not included in the citizen register. It is a horrific lesson. As we cannot foresee the future, and thus how personal information about us will be used, it may be better to store less than more. This is the essence of information ecology norms. Unfortunately, since 9-11, we have seen a significant backlash here, together with a wave of information retention laws as part of a rhetoric of fear and security, and thus limiting the political chances for an expansion of information ecology to address digital remembering. So with both potential responses not working, perhaps we need, dare I say, to think beyond laws. Some have argued for digital abstinence, for staying away from the technical tools that enable digital remembering. Not sharing everything on Facebook, as President Obama reminded us, may certainly reduce the threat of digital remembering, although he should have told his general Petraeus as well. Um, but is this realistic with over a billion registered users on Facebook? And would we want to deprive us of the value of information sharing and peer production that the tools of the Web 2.0 really provide us with? Another option, ostensibly the exact opposite of digital abstinence is the idea of full contextualization or to store digitally as much information as possible. That might sound strange, but, but here's the argument. 
perhaps the problem with digital memory is that it does not capture enough of an event to let us relive it accurately enough. Think of Jane and John. If Jane could only have relived sort of the, the reconciliation phase afterwards, maybe the problem would not have happened. So if we only could store everything about the past, including its context, we might be able to avoid the negative side effects of digital memory. In essence, full contextualization would help us regain our ability to think and act in time. At the same time, it would equalize information imbalances. But will full contextualization ever be technically feasible? And even if it were, do we really have time in our own personal lives to relive all of our past again and again and again and again only to grasp and decide what experiences in the past are no longer relevant for us today? That seems awfully unproductive to me. A further alternative is the hope for a cognitive adjustment in our society. That is the hope that over time we'll learn to devalue older information and to live in a world with an omnipresent past. Not society has to change or its laws, but our individual process of information evaluation and decision-making. That sounds right. That would solve our problem. I personally favored this approach or favored this approach until I talked to my cognitive psychologist friends who said and were quite skeptical about our human ability to force a change in how we are wired, in how we evaluate and process distant memories that we suddenly recall through the external stimulus of digital storage. They suggest that it may take us human beings a very long time to change the way we assess information and to modify what we have been doing for ages. And even if we could do this, what would be the appropriate mechanism to do that? So a different idea is not to change humans, but to change technology. Some, therefore, have proposed to use technology to change behavior. We could, they argue, create a quasi-property right to personal information, something like copyright and build that into all of our digital technology, our PCs, our smartphones, our digital devices, so that the technology would ensure that only those can process my personal information who I have permitted to do so. In short, the suggestion for experts among you is to create a global digital rights management system to protect privacy. But wait a minute. What is the implication of that? Do we really want to create a global technology infrastructure that would have to watch every hour move to ensure that nobody abuses somebody else's personal information? Would we not thereby create a perfect surveillance system to ensure <laughs> privacy? <laughs> I presented you with six possible approaches to deal with the challenges posed by digital remembering. Privacy rights and information ecology employ legal norms to address the challenges. Digital abstinence and cognitive adjustment hope that this could be achieved on an individual level, while privacy DRM and full contextualization mainly rest on achieving a technical breakthrough. The three on the left mainly talk, uh, target what I call the power dimension, and the three on the right 
aim at addressing what I call the time challenge. None of these offers a silver bullet, although all of them help in their very unique way. But we may need to mix and combine them and perhaps, dare I say, even add something else. 95% done. That usually is where academics stop. I go out on a limb. That's where I will fail. Something else. In addition to a combination of the tools we already have available, I advocate for a revival of forgetting. That is to establish mechanisms that ease forgetting in the digital age and that make remembering just a bit more strenuous, not by much. I do not want to overly burden remembering, but just enough to shift the incentives of forgetting and remembering back to what we humans are used to. One version of this could be called expiration dates for information. It would imply that whenever we want to store information or upload information or Flickr or post something on Facebook, we would also be able to enter a date until which we want that information to be stored. Once the date has been reached, the information would be deleted. And of course, we would be able to change the date any time we want, even after the fact of setting it. Expiration dates, I believe, help us to create more truly digital equivalents of the oral communication culture that we believe we have today. Consider Facebook. These Facebook status posts or Twitter, the tweets, they're more like the little ephemeral oral conversation that you have on the hallway. You think they go away. They don't. So my suggestion is, Let's try and see whether we can get them go away. That enables us to continue using these very powerful digital tools that we have available and at the same time combining the threat of digital um, uh, comprehensive digital memory. I do not want to impose more of my solution onto you at this point. We could talk about digital shoebox in the attics and all of this kind of stuff. But, but you have been patient enough to listen to me for such a long time. And the core message that I want to convey to you is the challenge we face in the shadow of digital remembering. And uh, my publisher made me say that if you're interested in finding out more, the book is still available. And please do not make a mistake. While helpful as an illustration, expiration dates come with a bag of weaknesses of their own. They're no silver bullet. And they're not designed to solve the privacy challenges beyond digital remembering. Perhaps most troubling is the weakness that expiration dates are still very binary. You either remember or forget. But human forgetting is much more gradual. And so perhaps in the future we can develop systems that digital forgetting that are more gradual as well, a kind of digital rusting. <laughs> so I'll skip the digital shoebox. And we can go back to that and the questions afterwards. So let me try and summarize. Forgetting, remembering. Since the beginning of time, forgetting has been easy for us. And remembering has been hard. In the digital age, the relationship has become reversed. Today, digital remembering is the default and it is forgetting 
that is often forgotten. I urge you. I urge you to give back to forgetting the role it deserves. Let us remember to forget. Thank you.